Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. London calling at the top of the dial. Hello, fellow Ramonas, and welcome to another edition of Romaniacs, the podcast that regards Brexit in the same way that the spider in your bathtub regards the plug hole. We know it's there, we know what it's for, but we don't want to fall down it. My name's Peter Collins. I am a retired business journalist previously at The Economist magazine, and now an unpaid and no doubt unpopular amateur Brexitologist. I'm here with our regular co-presenter, Ian Dunt, the editor of the excellent politics.co.uk. Hello, Ian. Hey, how are you? So, we've, the past week we've had Labour's first big post-election rebellion over Chuka Amuna's single market amendment to the Queen's speech, and we've had the campaign director of Vote Leave, Dominic Cummings, admitting on Twitter that leaving the EU could turn out to be an error, and mm. that the referendum itself <laughs> was a dumb idea. Pity didn't tell us all this before, eh? It's true. I, I do feel a sort of bit of sympathy for him. You know, he, he, it's a sort of late-night Twitter exchange, if you're just being a reasonable person. What he was basically asked was, is there any way in which you can see that, you know, that this would not be an error and he was like oh no i can think of plenty of ways that it might be an error and i sort of thought it's it's that you can put together this stuff around the things that he said that make actually it, it seems clear that his position has actually become really hovering around that maybe this really isn't a good idea but there was just a level of honesty there that i rather liked from him so the spanking he's got since then is, is a bit sort of hard to live with really. honesty in the brexit debate yeah, what will happen thought? next we'll, never catch well, we'll, on. we'll drool over all of that a bit later but before we proceed to the week's news let's first say hello to our very special guest dr mike goldsworthy of scientists for eu Mike's also a visiting researcher at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, is that correct? I don't know if that's still uh, live and going. Campaigning has rather taken over, so uh, (laughs) I'll have to check in on that one, yeah. But you have been studying the EU's research programmes for a number of years, and that's what we'll be talking about later. And we're pleased to say that you're an inveterate Romaniac, uh, the face of scientists for the EU's very busy and very amusing Facebook page. Quick plug, facebook.com slash scientists for EU. Tell us how you started scientists for our EU and why and what you're planning to do with it? Well, I am part of Scientists for Labour, and so when David Cameron won the general election in 2015 on the promise of having a referendum about EU membership, while some of the others were complaining about uh, Labour's loss, I said, right, the main thing here is what could really shaft British science is if we actually did vote to leave and science wasn't in the general election of 2015. So here is an opportunity to talk about what science does for local communities, why it's so important for jobs and in the economy and why British science in turn is is so dependent on the rest of the world. And and European science is a great, great hub of that. So that day I and and Rob Davidson um, set up Scientists for EU on on Twitter and Facebook. It got thousands of followers from scientists over the first weekend. And then we made it cross-party. We we brought in representatives from from all the other major parties and other sort of big wigs in science and basically just rolled it forward from there. And we've kept going. Great. Stay with us, Mike. We'll we'll come back to discuss some of the individual science issues that are important for the Brexit talks later, such as uh, nuclear is a big one, for instance. But first, let's do the news roundup. 
So Chuka Amuna, the former Shadow Business Secretary, led a doomed rebellion against Jeremy Corbyn and in favour of Britain continuing to belong to the EU single market. This led to three Labour frontbenchers being fired and possibly, uh, with as one of the things we'll be discussing, the end of Jeremy Corbyn's post-election honeymoon period. So, uh, Ian, first of all, what what happened here? What difference does it make? I'm not sure it was a failure, really. I, I, I don't think that sort of Amuna went into this thinking it's going to win. I mean, I think what he wanted to say was we're going to put down a flag here. This is our statement for, for can we get some kind of cross-party support for single market membership? Who can we attract? And a lot of that was demonstrating not just towards his own party leaders, but I think also towards the conservative benches and to say, look, I know you can't vote on this. This is Queen's speech. The Tories are never going to vote on that. If it was, you know, if they were defeated, they can't form a government. That would be, you know, sort of basically treasonous towards the party. But they can see the cross-party cooperation as possible. We came out of this with... 100, you know, about 100 MPs, about a third, you know, just under a third of what you'd need to win a vote in the Commons. So, you know, given we're at the start of a two-year process that is going to get more and more punishing as we go on, that seemed to me to be an all right result. However, I did recognise that this is one of those areas where there was a real split. I mean, Mike, who you and I agree on pretty much everything, Mm. you know, over the last year, I mean, we don't agree on this. My friend John Elridge was in The Statesman writing a piece on it. It's the first time I think I've disagreed with him on a single subject, apart from his weird esoteric stuff about the tube. But apart from Mm. that, it's very, very rare. So you finally started to see some, I think, genuine sort of disagreements in Remain camps over what was happening. And Amuna is not a perfect advocate, you know. I mean, I didn't think he was having a particularly good time after the vote bang on about freedom of movement just like everybody else i thought that was tiresome and yet it seems to me leadership of both parties need to be pushed on this issue this seems a good way to do it and it seems about the right time so mike what did you think of the of, of the tactic of, of bringing bringing about the vote on this now i don't actually disagree with ian on that in terms of what chucker was trying to uh, achieve i saw someone tweet out before you know i'm labor i'm very corbyn i'm for remain And I think there are tons of people out there who are like that. Particularly, we know the youth vote is very pro-European, and we think it's only going to become more so as they start realising what's being lined up for them by the current government. But they're also very pro-Corbyn because he is a lot more honest than mayors in terms of discussing issues, but the whole social agenda uh, sounds a lot more liberating to them than than the mean-spirited agenda that the current Tory government have lined up for them. So they are pro-Corbyn. So what do they do at the moment? Now, the reason why, of course, the the, um, the Corbynistas, if we can say that, were, were angry with Chucker was because there was that honeymoon period and they and they were all, you know, happy and warm and they think, you know, we look cohesive and the Tories look like they're falling apart. So the last thing they wanted to see is an overt gesture of what was happening because also in Labour's manifesto they were very proud that they had fudged it in order to keep on some of the hard leavers and keep on some of the hard remainers, even though those votes are kind of borrowed in faith in both camps. So there are those... Who within Labour, like if you look at, for example, what Paul Mason is saying, they're, they're kind of caught. They think that Jeremy Corbyn is not really, really hard Brexit, but at the same time, they're ready to rip open the throats of any pro-EU people that seem like they could be undercutting him on anything. So it captures people in, in a difficult circumstance, and there is a, a school of thought that if we don't challenge Jeremy Corbyn's leadership so overtly and directly and rather make the whole pro-EU case to the Labour base, which is 
the rest of the manifesto can only happen if we get rid of this becking, costly mess called Brexit, then that's the way you go and you go slowly over time and you have that patience and you have that faith. But then there's a counter-argument, what about if this faith is wasted? In which case this is where Chucker's move plays a very useful role because it shows that there's still some life there. So, yeah, you know, uh, a half a dozen of one, six of the other... You know, um, I think the ground is set up in a very interesting way. It is. And either of these tactics could succeed. I mean, there's always worthwhile pursuing simultaneous strategies, one public and one private, of course. However, what troubles me is the amount of stuff online that, that is this sort of idea that Jeremy Corbyn is somehow playing a long game and that ultimately he's a remainder. We, we've been here, this, this sort of psychological projection that the liberals have been doing for a lot of time now. They did the same with Theresa May when it was like she's bringing in, you know, this trio of guys to make them own Brexit. And it's like, no, she isn't. She is a lunatic nativist. And that has been demonstrated over the 12 months since. Now, Corbyn... It, you know, is a Brexiter. That is what he is. But I don't think he holds it very strongly. I actually think, you know, he, he could pretty much go one way or another if I there was think pressure there. I pretty agnostic on it. I well, mean... I would say uninterested. Yes. Actually, it's yeah. even no, worse no, absolutely. And yet the people around him are. Yes. Seamus Milne, John McDonnell. These yep. people are not messing about. They do not plan to stay. So the other day when we had about sort of 50 Labour figures, MEPs, peers uh, and MPs write that letter to the Guardian. So he's saying we've got to stay in the single market. Keir Starmer went into a complete rage. Now, not so long ago, he defended membership of the single market. Now, Keir Starmer's coming along, shouting at them, accusing them of being disloyal towards the leadership and coming out with all this legalistic nonsense about setting up structures within the UK that guarantee equivalence with, with the EU, i.e. basically saying there is no chance of single market membership. This is the thing. We can pursue different strategies for changing the leadership position, but we do have to recognise it is the leadership position. This is not, you know, he's not playing some long game. This really is what they're going for. And while that remains the case, I have to say I'm more tempted by ideas that try to use the majority in Parliament for single market membership to work on that now rather than throwing in all of our chips with a change of mind at the, at the top of Labour because I, I think that, that may be a very high risk strategy. And ob- obviously as someone who is not a Labour supporter and is not a friend of Jeremy Corbyn <laughs> I'm, I'm with you on this that I, 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 I want to I think it was a good idea I disagree with John Elledge's uh, piece that it was it showed how feeble the the Remain contingent is in Parliament because as you say the Conservatives couldn't Conservative Remainers who are a majority in the Conservative backbenches don't forget they are a majority in the Conservative backbenches mm-hmm. they couldn't do it because it's the Queen's speech it would be Armageddon if they if, if they voted down the Queen's speech it was a good way I think from my point of view of putting a marker down Parliament is not going to move if it doesn't think that it has both its parties and the population on board Quite right. So, yeah. so our efforts have to be probably not flogging parliamentarians to take action or trying to strangle leaderships and getting involved in all of that toxic debate, and it does get toxic, but rather make the positive arguments to the people and to the base. I mean, if you were to say, look, here we are starting at scratch, what do we want with the EU? Do we want collaboration on environment? Do we want collaboration on health? Do you want collaboration on science, on policies and investments in all of these areas? Then people start saying yes, yes, yes. And then they start understanding what the whole damn idea was in the first place. So I think that positive approach um, and selling it directly to the public because people are always looking at the polls and when they start seeing the shifts that we're already starting to see, then 
that will feed through naturally. I think, I think we get far too, too stuck in trying to control the politics from the top. This will all come from the bottom. That, I mean, it has to be a bit of all of that, doesn't it? I mean, you're quite right in, in this respect, certainly, that, yes, we can pull over Tories, centrist Tories, but also it's clear that an awful lot of work needs to be done on the Labour benches. Now, the bit that we never talk about is the fact that the right of the party supports Jeremy Corbyn's policy on Brexit, once out of the single market. Look at the, sort of the Steve Kinnocks of the world. There's, a, I would say, you know, quite a large swathe of the, of the Labour Party ultimately wants to go out of single market because it feels that it can't justify freedom of movement on the doorstep. Now, those guys have to be talked around. They have to be shown that the economic consequences of that decision are so severe as to make the con- kind of conversations they're having on the doorstep about immigration to look like small fry. But that process is, is difficult. It has to be said. And where that work takes place has to be about winning debates with members of the public outside of Parliament that then informs the opinions that are taken inside of Parliament. But all of that has to take place at the same time. That seems to be a good point at which to bring in another news item. Some some very interesting polls that we've had in recent days. The first one tells us that we, Romaniacs, are no longer the 48%, we're the 54%. (laughs) Servation's poll showed that if uh, the Brexit referendum had been held now, it would be 54% for Remain and 46% for Leave. There's an equal split at the moment on whether people want a second referendum on the eventual deal, 46% in favour of that, 47% against. And the most striking thing is, whatever Theresa May might have said in the election campaign, 66%, a thumping majority, say that no deal would be bad for Britain. That's a jump from 58% in the middle of June. They're already a majority, but still now a huge majority. Second poll is by Pew Research in 10 EU countries, nine of which the EU has got more popular over the past year, and Britain is one of them. Mm. Um, that uh, actually the popularity of the EU has now f- uh, risen f- since last year's poll from 44 to 54%. Interesting, it's the same number, 54%, as the number who would now vote to remain. It's notable that the polls, maybe, you know, bit of false optimism on my but it seems the polls are moving in the right direction. These polls are strong. I, I want to put the same health warning that you usually put on the economic news, which is I think that we need to go very slowly on this stuff. We've seen it now for two, three months, an improvement in the polls on how people would vote in this way. In order for there to be any case for a second referendum and in order for us to be really certain about what we're looking at, I think we need a sustained period of a very healthy lead for, for Remain. And that's not, you know, just sort of political reality. That is simply the fact that public opinion on the EU shifts like nobody's business. If you yeah. remember, like a few months, in fact, when David Cameron announced the referendum on the EU, one of the reasons so few people think he could possibly lose it, not least of all himself, was because support for the EU was at its highest level that it had been for absolutely years. Yeah. Then you start coming in with, you know, that kind of quite powerful, quite sort of resonant, uh, basically hard right sort of messaging that you know Nigel Farage dealt with this sort of racialized tinge nationalism and you can start shifting those things around you can start blaming the EU for all sorts of things for the basic reason for the perpetual reason of it, most of its troubles which is that it operates on an international level and the media operates at a national level so most people don't know what yep. goes on in the EU you can blame it for all sorts of things and you can blame that you know, and you can praise others for the things that it does do right so these are volatile numbers and, and we can't get afford to get too excited about it but it does feel over the last two or three months when you look at the, these poll results that there is some kind of shift you put that together over the next 12 months with the kind of difficulties and obstacles and hazards that will finally be in the press coverage of what is going on and that is I think a very very potentially beneficial position for us to be in going into sort of the 
the business end of what Article 50 represents. So going back to that other piece of news about Dominic Cummings, the former mm. uh, campaign director of the Leave campaign, admitting that, I love the way he put this, he said, in some possible branches of the future, leaving will be an error. So, <laughs> Mike, that means he's well aware of theories of alternative universes and multiple universes, presumably. So obviously scientifically very educated. Dominic is a very bright guy and he's a big fan of science and I like him. So despite his very mendacious streak during the referendum campaign, I laugh, but I mean, I, I actually think that really undercut British politics hugely. hugely. Nevertheless, he, he is a good guy to sit down and have a coffee with and discuss things through with because he is very bright and he is very open-minded. So that's just him being candid. He, he does actually loathe a whole ton of politicians. I, I won't tell you which ones, but um, on. <laughs> instead of, in, in, I, I think he's been bashed a lot. Um, I think it, w it would be really interesting to go back to him and some others who are rethinking what has happened in the circumstance we're in and actually open dialogue with them because mm. we're now all in the same mess together. So rather than trumpeting too loudly, I think it's probably time to be creative. But yeah, I mean, he's a smart guy. So when we're in a cluster, I don't know what words I can use. Uh, but when we're oh, the, the, the just say what you like. Yeah, so we're in a clusterfuck and he knows That's it. That's marvellous. Yes. <laughs> well, here's a thought. Yes, it's great that he's being honest. I'm glad to hear that he's a, a sensible, rational guy who can be can, 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 you, you can talk to. I'm just wondering if maybe the fact that he is having this burst of refreshing honesty and saying maybe it won't turn out right and maybe is it will actually allow some... Um, former Brexit voters to start re-examining their own positions. So he's sort of, I'm hoping here, I'm being the, I'm playing the optimist in this one. Maybe he's giving people permission, uh, Brexiteers, per permission to rethink. I just don't think he's publicly known enough for that. In political circles, he's well known because you know he was the brains behind that operation. But I think in terms of you know the guy on the street, I don't think very many people would have heard of him. It's not like Michael Gove or Boris Johnson or someone sort of making that kind of statement. I, you know what I really sign up to of what you just said was just basically the attitude we have when we see flickers of uncertainty on the other side. Because the, yeah. the classic thing is just to jump on them and pound away and be like, look, and how could you have done this to us? And then the other way is to say, well, actually, if you want to discuss this, you know, in a more open way, like, you know, we have concerns, it's possible we can work together and there's something there. But this sort of entrenched tribalism that we've had for the last 12 months makes that very, very difficult. And that shouldn't really be our, our approach to what is happening here. What was very interesting about that exchange, by the way, was the tweet that preceded it. It's the tweets, he's talking with David Green, who's sort of the FT legal blogger and very, 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 very good on Brexit. Um, and one of the things he said to him was, well, actually, they, our team is going about it in this extremely cack-handed way. So suddenly you put together that plus what he later said, and you thought basically what he is saying is this is going the wrong way right now. Now, he could be saying that for a couple of reasons. The first one is the nicer one. He's really being open-minded, really thinking things through and starting to recognize the danger of the situation that he helped create. Another one is to say, well, actually, he's doing that Iraq war thing, which is, well, the decision was fine, but the way it was implemented was a real problem. And it's that process of detaching yourself from the consequences of the thing that you backed in the first place. I very much hope that it's the first of those options and not the second. But we are starting to see a little bit of the second floating around in political debate and people sort of suggesting, well, you know, the decision was fine. I just wish we hadn't gone about it in this way. And that in itself is telling because it points to the fundamental lack of confidence that we increasingly see in Brexit advocates. We see it the way that 
Atlantis, they keep on make, expressing points. They no longer do any soaring rhetoric. They no longer make any positive points. It's yep. this shriveled up position. They become quite technical, quite semantic, and very, very defensive. And so all of that, again, points to an improvement in the way the public debate is going and, and a lot of opportunities for us ahead. A good point at which to jump on to our second topic, which is practical remoning. Um, obviously, it's wonderful to sit around and moan about stuff, especially if it annoys people that you don't like who are sitting <laughs> on the other side of the room. But, you know, we should be saying what's, what can we do practically to just move away from the, the disaster, at least we can't completely reverse things, to, to move in, in, the, in, the, in the direction towards a, the softest possible uh, uh, Brexit. Mine would be just to sort of, I think you're right, we shouldn't go for the bombastic, see it's all going our way, we were right thing, that doesn't work, it doesn't convince people. It's For me it's the sort of uh, old salesman thing of drop, you know, you 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 gently undermine your rivals' products by dropping fear, uncertainty, and doubt into the conversation on specific things. So, for instance, I had a conversation with a pro-Brexit family member and slipped in the point that you know all these wonderful trade deals that we're going to be supposedly doing with the emerging markets are not going to happen because all the big emerging markets, the Brazilians, the Chinese, the Indians, they are protectionists and they do not want mm. more of our products going into. They're happy to have. Our sell their products into Britain but they don't want this sort of trade deal we would have done it or you know we would, they would have done it with the EU already it's it's just not true that there are these things things like that and also the fact that you know with uh, we're going to lose the two big regulatory agencies that are uh, in Britain at the moment the medicines agency and the banking agency massive numbers of well-paid jobs including in all the companies that have well-paid staff nearby to the offices of these uh, regulatory agencies huge amount of of, of uh, good jobs going oh and by the way I think we're going to have to pay for them to move aren't we just dropping little bombs into the conversation like this and just uh, not telling people they ought to change their mind but offering them the small pieces of evidence that might gently begin to, 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 to change their minds I get asked this quite a lot when I do talks so what do you recommend that we do in order to change the thing and I'm always just I have no answers to that question because I don't come from that sort of political tradition. Like most of you know, the political commentators I know, for instance, that came from socialist parties or something, were used to that kind of organisational structure and you do demos and you do petitions and you do all that. I don't have any of that. My, my argument's always just like, keep on arguing until you win. Just keep on arguing in every scenario you win, whether you're with family, whether you're with friends, whether you're at work, whether you're in the pub. You keep on arguing, you keep on basing things on reason and evidence and your commitment to the well-being of your country, and eventually you win. I sort of still have this old-fashioned belief in the effectiveness of public debate and that it matters, that there's consequences to it, that it helps change the world. So all of that is just the only answer I have. So I'm very, very glad that Mike is sat across this table because I know he has much better answers <laughs> than the stuff that I just Not said. Not that we're putting you on the spot, Mike. <laughs> yes, no, heaven forbid. Um, one of the big drivers of the Brexit vote was people feeling that they weren't listened to. And this was an opportunity to, um, to actually be heard. And so I think as a strategy, intellectually bashing people um, might be quite ineffective. And, and you, you find for, for general debates and general discussions, if you actually listen to someone else and care about what irks them and help them break it down and you're genuinely interested in them, you might then find that they want to hear what you have to say. Um, that's, that's the gateway to people's hearts, um, to actually listen to what they have to say first 
and and then if they're curious about what you have to say, do that. So certainly in terms of our channels, for for our, our, our following and our faithful and our loyal, then it makes sense to have those echo chambers because you're arming people up with all the arguments. You're, you're giving them, you know, uh, clarity and weaponry, and that's what the Leave campaign did very well initially. But don't forget that there is a massive identity politics to all of this debate. And it's very hard for the parliament to make the sensible moves that they know that they should make technically until they feel they've got the right kind of support on board from the public. So if you think about, you know, the classic identity of working class and northern and that having been associated with Brexit, whereas in fact, you know, the pro-Brexit vote, whereas in fact... These are the people who are actually going to be quite shafted by Brexit. And if you can get some movements in those people that, you know, have been associated with the classic, you know, Corbyn, but also Brexit vote, if, if you can get movements going there, everything else falls into place because then it's it gives the Labour Party legitimacy to go and take that line. It means that, uh, you know, Brexit has lost you know, this, this, this false champion that had been the working class vote. When, when you had, you know, Alan Johnson, you know, being the, the, the Labour for uh, Remain and you had the trade unions being for Remain and the bulk of the Labour Party, even up north, you know, being for Remain. Um, so that narrative needs to get flipped. And I, I don't think it's just the arguments themselves, but who, who is now for Remain, who is turning, who is seeing that Brexit is actually now shafting them and was a solution for nothing, which is going to cost and distract from all the agendas that they really do care about. So One of the things that I think we got, that we learned really from the referendum, was how disconnected liberals and many centre-leftists have become yep. from the working class yep. communities that they were supposed to represent. Yep. And this is symptomatic of something that goes way back, that goes back to Blair and even the fall of the Berlin Wall, which is basically the de-economisation of our politics. When we gave up on having arguments about the free market, about nationalisation... What we did was we said, well, what politics is really about is um, there's a managerial aspect to the economy where everyone basically agrees, which is privatise everything, really. Yeah. And on the other hand, now we're going to talk about, you know, a little bit of social liberalism. And that's basically all that politics is. And what happened there was that suddenly you get Labour MPs, for instance. This is symptomatic of, of a whole liberal class, really, including myself, who previously would have come up through the trade union movement. They would come up through working class communities. They were in those rooms when they had debates, when some guy would say, well, actually, my wages are going down because of immigrants or immigrants taking my jobs. They knew how to answer those questions because yep. they grew up in those communities and they were able to have those debates. They'd been in those rooms. Suddenly when they're completely disconnected and that, this is over the period of what, you know, two, three decades, they didn't know how to respond to that sort of thing. You then get the Steve, Stephen Kinnock, I've brought him up twice. I mean, Stephen Kinnock put out this piece in the Fabians, I think it was, the magazine late last year. One of the most spectacularly dangerous and stupid pieces I've read in some time where he basically said, you know, perception is reality. If people say that immigration is to blame, we have to say that immigration is to blame because that's how politics works. And you think, no, that is actively lying to people, knowingly lying to them and not dealing with the material circumstances in which they actually find themselves. Instead, what we see, we see liberals constantly, and, and you know, we're really guilty of this, is trying to force change through the courts rather than through changes in public opinion. Yep. So for ages and ages, and this is symptomatic of the way people think about the ECHR and lots of other actually fundamentally really quite beneficial attributes that we have on the international stage, we saw liberals much more comfortable talking to judges than they were talking to working class communities. And this, one of the things that we need to recognize is that cannot 
continue. That connection must be there because if you leave the working class as the centre-left, guess who's going to come in and make sure that they take those votes? The hard right, just like they always will. And that's to be not just when we talk about remaining. It can't be just going back to the status quo. It has to be about saying we will address the reasons that you did this thing on housing, on education, on control over your lives, on work, on your income, on prices. We have to have answers to those questions. And if we don't, you're basically just conservatives. Exactly. And there's, I mean, one thing that frustrates me is with freedom of movement. Look at the deal that the Swiss did with freedom of movement. They have exactly the same concerns in Switzerland as we did here. They got a deal which was jobs have to be offered to Swiss locals in their local communities first before you can then go and advertise it internationally. Now, that is a solution that shows that you actually care about local communities. And in my mind, it is good and it is fair that businesses in local communities should be thinking about the people in those communities. That sense of local responsibility globalization has come in and washed that all away. You know, our culture, our British culture, in local communities around the country, Labour aren't talking about that enough and talking about how all of this can be served through a protective framework like the EU that protects Cornish pasties, that protects all regional products, that protects workers' rights, and then can be adapted through freedom of movement to also offer these kind of guarantees as well. And that's something that people, I am sure, could buy into, but I don't see people developing that as a, as a proper package that actually addresses very local concerns. So it's time now for a quick commercial break. Although we're sure you're enjoying Romaniacs, otherwise you would have switched off by now. There is such a thing as too much politics. And at this point, Ian comes in and says, no, 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 there's never too much politics. But anyway, if you're also interested in music, film, television, books, you may well enjoy our sister podcast, Big Mouth. Should we say sis- sister podcast? Because that's very gender specific, isn't it? Anyway, mm. it's our it's our uh, sibling. It's, okay, it's it? our sibling podcast, uh, Big Mouth, a pop culture talk show. Every week, it brings together Britain's top entertainment journalists to talk about the new releases, movies, and TV series in a style not entirely dissimilar from Romaniacs. This week, the special guests are Katie Puckrick, yes, from the Word on Channel Four, and the novelist and scriptwriter Jason Arnott. On the menu this week, there's the new movie Spider-Man Homecoming, the biopic of Morrissey, and a question of, is it time to stop worrying and learn to love goth rock? Uh, you can find Big Mouth at audioboom.com slash channel slash Big Mouth. Mike, you're, you're nodding sagely at the goth rock vibe. Yes. yes. <laughs> just, just, just to diverge, whatever happened to Fields of the Nephilim? Yeah. They were big in goth uh, rock. You may as well yes. be speaking in tongues. Well, indeed. Anyway, right. <laughs> So, on to our third topic. Um, we have our very special guest, Dr. Mike Goldsworthy of Scientists for EU, a Brexit pressure group which pretty much does what it says on the tin. As well as news and updates on Brexit from the science community's point of view, Mike's group offers plenty of laughter in the dark. Let's have a listen to one example, a video clip starring the man himself. Oh, yeah, hello. Uh, yeah, customer services? Yeah, okay, great. Um, yes, yes, please. Um, my parents were in your store last night buying your... Um, Deluxe Brexit with Meg Control. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of many buying this uh, very, very costly item. And uh, yeah, I can't get it to work. No, I mean, well, look, there's there's no instruction manual with it, first of all. But then, so I looked online and apparently no one can get it to work. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's, there's even a whole government department that can't get it to work. 
Dr Mike Goldsworthy there calling the Brexit helpline. So did you get anywhere, Mike, or did they just say to you, switch off the British economy and switch it on again? <laughs> well, we're still within the two-year period by which we can return it, so <laughs> I suggest very strongly that we do that. <laughs> One of those things that the EU is good for, consumer protection, eh? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. You also have a diploma in clinical hypnotherapy, is that oh, right? Oh, crikey, that's a while ago. Yes, yeah, I so do. Can you hypnotise the Brexiteers to make them see things differently? Do you think? I mean, as, as a general thing, I, I don't believe in actively changing other people's minds. I mean, as, as a general principle, you know... It, People like to have this this notion of kind of like, how do you make other people see the light as if you are, the, you know, the holder of truth? I don't believe that. I mean, during um, I'm very curious to know what other people think in other domains and other sectors. And what we said during the referendum campaign was like, don't vote remain just because we say so. We're not even telling you to do that. We are letting you know that within the science community, 93% are saying that the EU is a major benefit to British science. Um, and here are the reasons why. Because science is international, uh, there are no foreigners in science, we are a global community, and the EU, which actually used to be a little bit rubbish on the science front, and I've published articles slagging them off, has really got their act together and has now been the glue between all of our fantastic countries, lowering barriers to collaborations and all that kind of stuff, just so you know. That's our story. So um, it's all about hypnotising people and changing their minds, and you will see... Th the things the right way, but rather about everyone in society sharing their knowledge and making their contribution. Which is the scientific way of doing things. Yeah, so, quite. So yeah. there's so many areas in which um, of science in which Brexit will affect Britain, yep. from, from nuclear to um, the environment to... Also, what, what, what are your big worries so far, based on what little we know about what this Brexit agreement is going to involve? What are your biggest worries? OK, so first of all, the universal thing that will happen, soft Brexit, hard Brexit, clean Brexit, red, white, blue Brexit, whatever, um, if we're not in the EU, we lose um, our MEPs and we lose our government from the council, which means that the EU, which sets uh, a lot of policy and develops regulations around science, which are dead helpful when you're trying to work cross-country, um, we won't have a say in that. We won't have a formal say in that. We'll probably try and lobby them ferociously from outside through all of our communities because they are the place in the world that sets really, really good standards. But it's such a shame that we won't have our own teams integrated with that. For example, um, our standards on, on animal welfare and safety were pretty much copy-paste across the EU. Clinical trials, there was the clinical trials directive um, that we all tried to set up and then it had problems with it and then when it got revised that was mainly led by the Brits. MEP Claire Moody then lots of British societies led that drive and so the first layer is, is the whole political shaping up of, of policy and regulations and direction were cut out from. But then, if we don't agree to freedom of movement, um, then we could lose our place within the science program as well and play as a third party, which means that you can't uh, uh, get certain types of grants and you can't coordinate the big international projects. And then freedom of movement is a, you know, if we drop it, that's a pain in the ass itself because it just means that the, the free flow of people is that much harder, especially to small research groups and small businesses that don't have the capacities to handle the, the administration. So 
it just starts putting up barriers and it starts sidelining us when we were, in fact, driving the whole European engine, which is, as, as I said before, you know, Europe as a whole produces 39% of the world's scientific outputs. What's the deal with, with the NHS? I mean, as I understand it now... Um, the main threat is obviously foreign nurses leaving. Yeah. Um, and also, as, as I understand it, uh, there were, you know, basically when we saw the devaluation of sterling, the products that the NHS was buying from outside of the UK, like uh, MRI scanners, as I got it, basically the price started soaring and there was a, we're yep. already seeing a financial cost there. Are there any yep. other elements? I think the same is true with generic drugs, which are buying from outside the UK. For sure. Um, so about half of NHS purchases comes from outside the UK. So, you know... Um, the, the pound hits that. That hasn't been documented as much as it should. Someone did an initial costing of around 900 million uh, per annum for that. Um, also, um, if the economy suffers as a whole, then that's less money for the NHS. As uh, Simon Stevens, uh, the chief exec of NHS England, said himself, when uh, the economy sneezes, the NHS catches a cold. Mm. The NHS is, is very sensitive to the economy. And so this notion that we'd get, you know, 350 million per week back, you know, that's small beans compared to calculated economics hit. So if, if it's 10 billion a year that we think that we can get back net, well, we've already costed for 15 billion a year in, in the extra borrowing that we have to do because of Brexit. It's a net loss. Um, and then, of course, there's all of the research and innovation around the NHS. The NHS constantly needs to adapt. So it needs those frameworks of public health. It needs those frameworks of medicines and um, uh, uh, techniques and operations research, which we do with a lot of Europe, especially in rare diseases and genetics. Um, and then also there's the European Medicines Agency. And basically, if we are a separate market from the rest of Europe, then we could be getting our medicines at a later date because we're just a smaller market. Canada and Switzerland get them, uh, get medicines, innovative new medicines, six months after the EU does. And one thing that, fact that amazed me when I looked into this is that Although people in Britain, Brexiteers, talk about the cost of being the EU, we actually actually are in a surplus, aren't we, on research funds? I saw some figures that said that between 2007 and 2013, uh, Britain paid in 5.4 billion euros into Europe's research programmes mm -hmm. and received 8.8 back. Um, that's a, that's you know quite a sizable surplus, isn't it? That we gain from being part of this because we have strong universities and strong researchers, we actually get funds to do the research here. This is the narrative that we tried to kill from day one. Because we're a net contributor overall, it gets immediately pointed out, OK, so you get back a little bit for science, but overall you're putting a lot more money into the EU than you're getting back. So that point is moot. So we tried to tell the science community, don't go with that because it's about bean counting with money anyway. The point is... If you have X amount of money, is it better spent nationally through our own highly prestigious channels and we are number one in the world for productivity or is it best put through the middleman of the EU? And the answer is actually the latter because when you pool those funds, it allows you to do the kind of science that you can't do on a national-only level. It allows you to do seven, eight, ten-country partnerships. It allows special colossal grants that you can do and also it gets more return on investment because international papers that are international collaborations have 40% more citation impact than national only. So the argument is not how much goes in and comes back because that's just, just pushing money around, but rather where do we get maximum value for our money? 
and analysis shows and experience of our scientists shows that when we are part of the EU programme, that is money very, very well spent because Europe is outcompeting the rest of the world in terms of big and international projects that actually link the whole globe. It's funny, you know, there was a tweet yesterday by Daniel Hannan, the highly esteemed Daniel Hannan, mm. who sort of listed all the stuff that Brit you know, Britain had created and blah, blah, blah. And one of it was the internet. This is a really interesting thing to say because, A, it's not the internet, it's yes, the World Wide Web, of course. Exactly, yep. But it was Tim Berners-Lee at CERN. Yep. This, you know, area, almost this, you know, almost like a monument to European cooperation for yep. science. Yep. It's in that context, rather than just stripping out the nationality of the bloke that came up with the idea, that you can best understand how this kind of innovation sure. comes about. Now, Daniel Hannan would probably say, yes, but of course CERN isn't part of the EU. Like, right. the European yes. Space Agency yeah. isn't part of the EU. Yes, mother. Uh, but that all these things are demonstration of the value of the European spirit of collaboration. So CERN is one, the ESA is one, dozens of other research infrastructures are there as well. And then there's the EU, which has been the very best glue between nations at actually getting um, the same spirit as CERN and ESA through thousands and thousands and thousands of smaller projects covering health, covering materials, covering car manufacturing, covering the lot. Uh, yeah. I love the way that you still won't swear. It's just like a part of you just stops it at the point. Because it comes so naturally to me. And this is something that, you know, when you go on, you you have to choke back uh, a lot. So, yes. Well, there's one specific uh, thing that's, again, is sort of attached to the EU but not of the EU is Euratom which is a very important thing that we are also going to leave and with lots of bad consequences can you can you sum up for us what the problem is if we leave Euratom Okay, um, if you say if we leave Eurotom, we've already given notification that we are leaving Eurotom without actually warning anyone within the broader science community or nuclear safety industry. So that was smart, um, when actually a lot of legal advice was that we didn't have to, or if we did have to, we could have delayed it. But um, So Eurotom is basically um, a, a, a treaty, an agreement set up pretty much at the same time as as some of the first EU treaties. And it covered initially nuclear energy for civilian use, stopping the uh, propagation of of nuclear materials that that could be dangerous. Uh, But then also a lot of nuclear research came into that. And through the Euratom Treaty, we also have uh, bilateral agreements globally concerning nuclear materials, so even down to use in medical devices. Now, if we come out of Eurotom and we don't have another mechanism to sort of buy into it or we don't set up our own framework and then make all those bilateral deals in time, then that means that we don't have a legal framework within which to do a lot of the things that we do now, from checking nuclear safety to investing in nuclear research to movement of materials that are important in in radiotherapy and so forth and so on. So basically, the clock has just been started on um, our community to come up with a solution in, in very short order. So, so as I understand, to correct me if I'm wrong here about how it works, is that let's suppose we want to import a radioactive isotope from country X to mm-hmm. be used in medicine. Uh, at the moment, they say the UK is part of Euratom and is clearly complying with all of its standards for yep. you know, disposal and proliferation and so on. Therefore, that's OK. We'll sell it to you. We will lose that and we'll have to somehow satisfy this country by setting up safeguards of our own from scratch. 
um, in order to get that country to sell us the thing, these things that we need. Are they setting up an agency? There's the talk about that they've given it a name, I think, haven't they? Well, we, but, we've already, uh, is, we've already we, got our own national agency, this, yeah. and then there's also the, the international um, atomic um, agency. I mean, basically, will it be done... Yes, probably. Will it be done in time? No one knows. Uh, so could there be a period of, of difficulties? Yes. It's the uncertainty, and that also just slows down a whole load of you know work and investment in the UK. It's just basic mismanagement. And the, the thing is, you know, if this were done in isolation randomly, aha, let's, let's leave a random treaty and see how we handle that, fine. But if we're going to do it at the same time that we're leaving the customs union and the single market and the mm. freedom of movement framework and other areas of the ECJ, uh, like the European Medicines Agency, European Banking Agency, Passport, we've just put so much on our plate at the moment that it's just not known whether we'll be able to handle all of this in parallel, let alone the interactions between all of these changes that we're making. That is the clusterfuck that is Brexit. I thought your swearing there was very good, by Thank the way. <laughs> and very appropriate, I think, in the circumstances. <laughs> so when it comes to all the research, the EU research programmes that we participate in at the moment, uh, there is this associated country status, isn't there, yep. that countries that are not EU members, such as Turkey and, Turkey and Israel, yep. can be associated country. Presumably, is that where we're heading? We'll, we'll become an associated country? Yes. Um, that's what we are on path for. Now, um, there is an issue here over whether we can be a fully associated country with freedom of movement dropped. So, for example, Turkey and Israel are fully associated countries without freedom of movement. But with Switzerland, they had a whole headache over the issue, and because they would ratify the freedom of movement deal with Croatia when Croatia came on board, they got dropped out of Horizon 2020 altogether. Which is one of the big research programmes, yep. Yes, yes, Horizon 2020 is the 80 billion euro programme that runs from 2014 to 2020. And so then uh, Switzerland just got dropped out of it altogether. They made their own backup systems at huge cost for Erasmus and, and for some of the uh, European grants. And then they worked out a halfway uh, partial access thing. Basically, we'll be in the same boat because... We can't have a deal like Israel and Turkey because essentially that would be, at our side, just plundering the EU science programme for our own benefit but with one-way rules. And you can't say that we are entitled to that because Turkey and Israel are because it's the EU's programme. They can set whatever rules they like in order to take care of their own research institutes and their own researchers and their own program, and that has to be their priority. And that subtlety was just not understood by some of the Brexiteers that said, well, look at Algeria, you know, we can use their rules. Yeah, but we are 30 times the size and we would suck that program dry. They don't have to give us that. You know, we are not entitled to their house, and we're not their exactly girlfriend, encouraging their science to... programme. <laughs> yeah. yeah. One last question on uh, science and Brexit before uh, we move on. Um, is there anybody or any reasonable number of people in the science community that's pro-Brexit? Have you come across any? <coughs> sure. So there was a group called Scientists for Britain that set up um, uh, in response to us setting up, and so we did many debates during during the referendum campaigning. And I would always say at the beginning of the debates, because, you know, I, I would 
you know, can have lunch with these people and drink with them and chat with them and share jokes with them. Because, and I would say, we are all part of the science community. We all believe in lowered barriers to innovation. We all believe in free flow of talent around the world. We all believe in collaborative research. And this debate is only about whether the EU is a help or a hindrance. And then I'd usually drop in. And a handful think it's a hindrance, and the vast majority think it's a help. <laughs> So let's move on to uh, our next final topic, a fish call Brexit. Uh, older listeners may recall the joys of the Cod Wars. You have to be as old as me for that. And all those arguments we've had over the years about the common fisheries policy. Well, it's back again because for no particularly compelling reason, Britain has now pulled out of the 1964 London Fisheries Convention. It hasn't even got Euro in the name. It's not even an EU agreement. But seemingly there's nothing we can't do in order to annoy our neighbours in the name of taking back control. Ian, what is this all about? Uh, God knows. Michael Gove did this as a big, first big move as Environment Secretary. Basically, what this is, this is how you, this is how you deal with a resource that doesn't respect national boundaries. If you just allow everyone to fish in their own water and not to come into each other's, what you'll get is you'll get a certain kind of stock just being rapidly depleted because there's no coordination, there's no communication between the nations as they and fish. And the fish don't know where the boundaries are, do they? The, those disrespectful foreign fish go, they, they exert freedom of movement without asking any of the left behinds how they feel about it. So the system that comes up is that basically there's quotas. Quotas are typically based on historically how much you've used. And each year you come up with some idea of what the the maximum sustainable yield is and you allocate those quotas off to countries. That's how the European system works. The big question about how we're going to approach fishing in Brexit is are we going to do hard, middle of the road or soft? I mean, the soft version would be to try and stay in that system. We'd be leaving the EU, but maybe we'd come up with some kind of associate sort of status that would allow us to still be part of that. Or we could go for the middle version. That's to put out of that system, but to basically, before they have these conversations, these annual conversations on sustainable yields, Norway and Iceland and the Faroe Islands have a bilateral, basically, a chat with the EU, and they come up with some numbers and see what they can make work. And the expectation was we were going to try and exert ourselves into that meeting, which, by the way, is no small thing because when it comes to fish, the Norwegians are hardcore. Like they play, they play hard on this kind of stuff. They really do care. So that in itself would be quite challenging, very, very challenging indeed, actually. And yet, not as much as the third option, the hard option, which is you basically say, off my lawn, you know, everyone out of our waters up to the 200 mile zone, don't you come in here and off we go. Now, you're right, this doesn't have anything to do with the EU. So why has Michael Gove done it? You certainly think, well, it, on its own terms, it seems completely meaningless. I mean, this, that, there's no real money in fishing that happens that close to the shore. All the real money is in sort of, you know, white fish, several miles out in the, in the North Sea and the Northeast Atlantic. So what's he doing? And it seems to be the start of a very hard interpretation of Brexit for the fishes, which is, you know, <laughs> get, get away from our waters. Everyone fishes in their own place. Now, that is potentially utterly catastrophic for our domestic industry. Fishermen, very, very pro-Brexit, 95% leave vote. I think the most pro-Brexit part of the, of the economy of society, as I understand it. And yet, they're going to be damaged by this. Here's why. Lots of people come into our waters. We got a bad deal on the quotas. And that, you know, that it was worth us looking at that again. 
And we also do a very bad deal domestically, by the way, when we keep on giving these quotas to very large drawlers, we don't give them to smaller ones, that most of the injustice happens on the domestic level of what we decide to do. Nevertheless, they come into our waters an awful lot. Only about 20 to 30% of our fishing is done in Europeans' waters. So it seems like a classic case of they need us more than we need them. Fine, that would support Gove's suggestion. However, 80% of our, export, of, of our fishes are exported. 63% of our fish exports go to the EU. Now, if they start slapping on tariffs on those fish exports, that is a major problem for coastal towns, really quite decrepit, struggling coastal towns, reliant on fishing. Fishing is a very small industry in Britain, but it's crucial for those towns. And you suddenly find yourself in a very, very dangerous area indeed. It's just like the car industry, in a sense. Yes. In Britain, the cars that we make, we typically export, and the cars that we drive, we typically import. Uh, and therefore, we are reliant, and uh, there's a great deal of that is with the European Union. So therefore, we are, to a great extent, reliable on having free trade, no customs checks, and all these things, no worries about rules of origin, all this sort of thing. So it's very similar with, 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 with fish, that um, it's not just looking at the, the, the numbers for the amount of by which European boats come into British waters. It's also the fact that you know our, our fishermen will need to be in the European market, or they'll have to try selling their fish to Thailand or something. You know, yeah. it's, it's, go, it's going to be d- difficult for them. The, what they should be worried about is the discussion about the single market access, uh, customs union, hard borders and stuff like that. That's very important to them, but the, and yet they don't seem to, to get that. There, there's some aspects of this which are specific on fishing and some aspects which, as you're saying, are much broader and indicative of our general EU response. I mean, on the specific stuff, you can be sanctioned hard on this stuff. The EU absolutely clobbered the Faroe Islands when they started... They, they, the Faroe Islands got a bunch of mackerel and herring suddenly came into their waters and just started catching it, upping their quotas. And the EU absolutely hammered them. They, they tried to sort of fight it off at the UN. They tried to fight it off at the WTO. And eventually the Faroe Islands just, just capitulated after Moody's downgraded its credit rating on the severity of the EU sanctions. I mean, it is the Faroe Islands. It's not, it's not a huge territory. But nevertheless, it, it had a significant effect. And there's a, the other way in which it's slightly different is, you know, it's... It, it is contrary to international law, the, the UN uh, laws on the, on law of the sea. It, it is contrary to that. So we'd have difficulties there on the hard Brexit interpretation. That's all specific to fishing. What is general and what is applicable across the way that we do the EU is you see this constant reliance on tough looking rhetoric, on divisive symbolism above any concrete change in the thing that you are trying to do. So again, Michael Gove does this. It doesn't really have any practical effect at all, really. I mean, absolutely trivial. And to call it trivial, you know, it's probably an exaggeration even. And yet what it does is it poisons minds in Europe against us. So you see Barnier, you know, kick back against it. You see this sense of Britain just pulling up the drawbridge and just closing itself off from the world. And for what? For nothing. He has accomplished absolutely nothing, except he's satisfied sort of the emotional delinquency of a bunch of Brexit headbangers. And and, and even that doesn't seem like it's a very significant accomplishment in and of itself. And then instead of seeing any, you know, decent response to it, what we really get is the Europeans take umbrage against us in other parts of the negotiation. It's the crucial thing on Brexit. Everything affects everything else. If you start poisoning people against you on something that doesn't matter, don't be surprised when it comes to something that does matter, like financial services or your car industry, really big clobbering aspects of the British economy. And that's where they use to punish you. And again, what we're seeing from Michael Gove, the standard thing, this toothless belligerence, this completely self-serving sort of divisive symbolism done in order to mask the utter meaninglessness and vacuousness of the actual content of the proposal that you've put forward. 
it goes back to what Mike was saying, Mike Goldsworthy of Scientists for EU, our guest today, um, or about how to persuade people and how not to persuade people. This yeah. just seems to me, don't you think, how, just how not to do it? So you can see from uh, Barnier's response that this caught them by surprise. I mean, they weren't told beforehand, hey, look, this is how we want to rework it. There, there was no collaboration that away. Similarly with May and, and when she was guaranteeing EU citizen rights, the three million and the European uh, representatives were both like, well, what, 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 what does this mean? We have to wait on the details. They weren't given the details before this announcement. All of their labelling and all of their branding is to try and keep the trumpets trumpeting away mm. for Brexit. Whereas what they actually need to do is get on with the nuts and the bolts of our 27 friends and neighbours. But they are not talking to them properly. They are not getting this sorted for our benefit. They are just continuing to look to market the whole thing to a very narrow audience within the country. And at some point, the wheel's going to have to come off this. Thanks very much. So that's the end of another show. Before we go, here are just a few of the encouraging messages we've had from listeners across the Ramonosphere. Sarah Kay on Twitter says, For all the crap Ramonas get, at RomaniacsCast, that's our Twitter handle, is remarkably confident and calm. Uh, meanwhile, on iTunes, user Thamas, I have no idea what, what that is, um, says, finally, some intelligent commentary on the ongoing train wreck that is our national politics. As the spouse of a non-EU national, it was very refreshing to hear discussion of the depravity of our immigration system. Thanks, Thamas. Jacob Weberwood, also on Twitter, says, Thank you for raising the issue of cruelty in our immigration system. I'm having to leave my country because of the ludicrous minimum financial requirements just to be with my wife. Well, we hope it doesn't come to that, but we fear that there's going to be a lot more of that sort of story. Well, that's the end of the show. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Ian and to our special guest, Mike Goldsworthy of Scientists for EU. Thank you, Mike. Well, you can get more Romaniacs at romaniacs.com. There's links on our website to our archive. There are buttons for you to listen again if you want to. There are links to us on Audio Boom. Uh, iTunes and now Spotify as well. We'll be back in a week with more treachery and sabotage. Until then, as ever, we're going to finish with a reason to be cheerful and it's Ian's turn this week. What have you got, Ian? Trump's shadowy visit in the middle of the night, which was sort of announced in the press <laughs> on Sunday, that apparently he's coming over at some point, might go play a bit of golf in Scotland, and then with 24 hours notice is going to pop into Downing Street. Why? Because he's so terrified of protests. What I love is this came out just after he posted that video of him, you know, this sort of mock-up video of him beating this guy. And it's always the bullies. It's always those who are most obsessed with their strength, who are just the most unspeakable snowflakes when it comes to coming across people who have opposing views to them in any way. But I am deeply pleased, and it warms me at night, to know that this cretinous man is terrified of coming to London because of the protests that we will inflict on him if he does. So there we have it. Another show over and time for goodbye. This week, it's the turn of the Danes to have their language mangled by an English fool. So it's Favel og bedste ønske. Very good. Probably completely right. <laughs>